How are you? This is Dr. Dave on call. Uh, I believe this is episode five. We are going to talk about today the rationing of healthcare resources, and we're going to discuss some ethical issues behind that today. Uh, recently, we talked about advanced directives and how this relates to um, our wishes for uh, healthcare treatment to be done to us in a, in, in a time of need. But during these pandemics, we should talk about this critical period we're in right now. We talked about the pandemic curve in Illinois right now. We are getting close to this apex, um, which is the top side of that curve with the number of cases and the number of fatalities. And we also most importantly talked about that dotted line, the healthcare capacity. And if we're going to bust through that line, which could really trigger um, an exhaustion of our healthcare resources, more specifically, talking about, let's say, mechanical ventilators or blood products, they may be in short supply. So let's hypothetically state, right, that um, what if I get COVID-19 and I develop this you know, cough, and that leads to this respiratory distress where I am really having a hard time to breathe. And I go to the emergency room, and the treatment team comes together after treating me, getting the labs and the imaging and everything, and says, you know, Dave, we need to put you on a mechanical ventilator. And so let's say, hypothetically, we are busted through the healthcare capacity, and the healthcare capacity level, the threshold, and ventilators are in short supply. What happens? Who decides if I get one? Obviously, that's a really snap decision. Um, you know, it happens really quickly when you need to figure out whether you want to uh, mechanically ventilate a patient. But let's say this. Let's say I am mechanically ventilated, which in my advanced directives podcast, I want Based on my age, I have no pre-existing conditions. I want to be ventilated. Um, so let's say I'm on the mechanical ventilator for a period of time. And the ventilators are in short supply during this pandemic. Who decides if I should give up this ventilator I'm on for another person? That's a, that's a big question, you know, uh, surrounding uh, a, a lot of worry that people have during this COVID-19 pandemic? Honestly, these are really serious questions that I never thought I would ever entertain in my life. So that's what we're going to talk today. We are going to talk to Dr. Lisa Anderson Shaw. She's the former director of clinical ethics consult service at the University of Illinois uh, Medical Center in Chicago. And so she's going to help us address not only these questions, but to explain that there is a complex framework um, and a, uh, of a clinical decision model behind this that was very crucial to not only um, academic institutions, but, you know, policies that have been, um, you know, talked about, discussed, and agreed upon uh, over large infrastructural healthcare facilities um, to address these situations. You know, if our... Um, healthcare capacity has been exhausted. How do we handle these resources? 
who decides to get mechanically ventilated and for how long. Um, so we're we're gonna we're gonna talk to Dr. Anderson Shaw. She is the director of clinical ethics consult service and the assistant uh, clinical professor at the University of Illinois Medical Center at Chicago. And today we are going to be talking about um, the healthcare capacity and how it relates to um, the pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and uh, the need for ventilators. Um, should the need exceed? Uh, the number of available mechanical ventilators. Thank you for coming on to our show today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, there are um, there's a lot of panic that's been ensuing in the general public today because um, there's been a lot of news media surrounding the issue of uh, mechanical ventilators and how as we reach our apex in the coming days and weeks here in the United States and even in our city of Chicago, that if we breach that healthcare capacity threshold, uh, people are concerned, well, will there be enough mechanical ventilators for me? Should I need it? And uh, additionally, if I end up being on a ventilator, um, you know, who should remain on these ventilators um, is a concern of people. So I'm glad that we could talk about this today because uh, what we're, the goal is to, number one, temper any sort of panic or anxiety that people may have, but also really get, get in depth of um, the education behind it, the clinical decision model that you um, and Dr. Lin have created uh, you know, in 2009 at University of Illinois that has been implemented to at other uh, academic uh, centers. So let's take it from there. So um, what prompted Dr. Lin and I at UIC in 2009 to, to kind of write a paper that had um, some logical protocols related to either large-scale disaster or pandemic-type situations. H1N1 never really developed in the United States, but it, it prompted us to to think about what would we do in institutions if we got overrun by patients um, who were very sick and who needed um, to be triaged in a fair way um, as far as what kind of treatments would be available. And um, so we came up with our, our protocol um, paper, um, but it kind of looked at kind of the ethics or the, the um, fairness, ethics, and um, the global, you know, kind of, it was really, I'm sorry, I'm like, um, it was really looking at um, public health, you know, in large scale disasters. So in, in situations such as a large scale disaster or a pandemic where you have a, a, a great number of folks coming in at the same time that need help, you have to have some sort of, of triage system in place to to make sure that you take care of the sickest folks first, and then you go down um, the line um, as far as who needs the most attention immediately. So we looked at um, the principles of beneficence and justice related to healthcare, and really looking at the public health context in large scale, because we're no longer looking at individual patients, even though we are, we're looking at, at um, priority levels that patients might be in. So um, we looked at how we can use beneficence in that global kind of public health way to, to serve the greatest number uh, in the greatest way we can. 
and through uh, looking at battlefield triage uh, allocation, for instance, you would treat the, the sickest patients first, and then you would go down the line. And those that you couldn't, um, that, that were in a lower priority because they were much more sick or, or were not going to survive, you would have uh, palliative care kind of taking care of those folks. And somewhere in between is where you would be trying to decide what um, what resources like ventilators, dialysis, blood products, what they need, and how we can allocate those in a fair way. Take us through what 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 is benef uh, uh, benefits mean? Excuse me. It, beneficence is just being of benefit. So right. the, the the primary role is to benefit when you can, and um, if you. If you can't do anything that will medically benefit, for example, if we use medicine as an example, because maybe they're too far along in the in the um, infectious process or whatever, um, like pneumonia, for example, um, if they're not going to benefit in the best um, way, recover, uh, then we have to palliate and make sure we keep them them. Uh, comfortable, but beneficence is really just looking at what are the things that are of benefit at the moment. So in healthcare, it's really interesting because um, we kind of parcel out uh, all healthcare as being beneficial when we have to define what benefit we're, we're going towards. Is the benefit to cure? And if we can't cure, then the benefit is to, to make comfortable. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of the public may not think about um, when it comes to allocation of resources. But we don't want to scare folks that believe that there's going to be some, some lottery system that isn't taking into account individual uh, situations. Great. So this is when a patient comes in depending on where they are at in terms of the illness, there will be a group collective team effort, not only with the provider and the team themselves to determine how far along they are, but in terms of their disposition process of where they end up in the hospital and what treatment they're getting. Correct. Um, and so far it's um, been amazing in Chicago and in Illinois in general, we have not seen a huge surge of COVID-19 patients that we did not have enough uh, ventilators to take care of. So that has been very calming, I think, among the, the medical professionals because we do have seriously ill folks that come in with COVID and are placed on ventilators, but we have not had to make any uh, triage decisions based on the patient's medical status, whether or not we are going to use the ventilators or if they are too sick to benefit from the ventilator. Which is, which is comforting to know both on the logistics side of preparation from a large scale from the hospitals, but also too um, that we can actually understand that our physical distancing and mitigating efforts are helping to control yeah. Um, the spread of COVID-19 too as well. And take us through also, I, I do want to touch upon, you know, the, the concept of justice too. I think that's mm -hmm. equally as important too. So justice, just like in um, the legal sense, it looks at fairness and equity as far as 
what is being asked to provide. So um, in, in, in healthcare, it's looking at uh, fair, equitable, and appropriate distribution determined by justified norms that structure the terms of social cooperation. So that's kind of the definition. But it's looking at um, you treat like cases alike. So if you have um, an illness where you're very, very sick, you should get the same uh, treatments, the protocols, the appropriate treatment for that disease that anybody else gets in that that disease process. Um, so that's what we look at with justice. But you don't apply specific medications, for example, or therapies that will not be of benefit. So beneficence and justice kind of go together in looking at what will benefit. But justice really kind of looks at the fairness that across the board that all patients should get related to um, treatment options or goals of care. That's another way we look at uh, uh, what is the goal of care for this patient. Is the goal to palliate, to keep comfortable, or is there really a, a fair goal to, um, to heal, you know, make whole again? And there's a whole lot of stuff in between that helps us decide what is um, the most appropriate level of care for that person's disease or or health issue. So let's get into that because I think that is in a, is really the crux of you know when people come in that they know the background behind this process of the clinical decision model of what happens to them when they walk into the hospital. So let's let's start with the the seven step process that you and Dr. Lynn um, you know created in two thousand nine. That's a great framework to use. Okay. Yeah. So. And this is being used um, in different protocols throughout the city. It's not uh, just our protocol, but there's variations. But for the most part, the clinical team, the physicians um, come in and they kind of uh, review the patient's clinical status. And that includes everything that's going on with the patient at the time, plus what we call comorbidities. So it's not just what the patient has now when they're walking in, but that's the most important part at that moment. So let's say they come in with a pneumonia, then the doctors and the, the clinical staff go through and assess the patient as far as what level of the pneumonia they are at. So they do things like uh, SOFA scores, uh, sequential organ failure scores, to see what damage has been done. And if, if by by protocols, we can reverse that, then the priority score gets a little higher for certain resources, or it gets lower depending on how how bad the infection is that the person comes in with or, or health problem. Um, they also look at other things um, like what health history the patient has. And that could include things like diabetes, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, other common things that happen um, as we age, but also um, happen due to, you know, just environment and social, you know, events, you know, like smoking and, and other things that can cause these, um, what we call comorbidities. But all of that data goes together to look at the overall picture of um, survival. Excellent. And that's what they're, in, in this pandemic situation or disaster, you really look at the survival um, 
triage guidelines to see who is going to likely benefit from aggressive therapy and who isn't. And then there's the, the category in the middle that, you know, we still provide aggressive therapy, hoping that they'll move into um, the more or the less severe healthcare state. So it's interesting because it's not, it's different institutions use different um, borings um, for these things, but whatever they use, it's really applied justly across all patients that come in. So the scores are as objective as we can get related to the overall condition of the patient that comes in. Because I think that's one of the concerns that people have, especially people who, let's say, have asthma or you know, cardiovascular issues like high blood pressure or they're smokers or they're currently smoking or an ex-smoker or they have, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, you know, these, these conditions that put them even more at risk for a serious outcome from COVID-19, it's sometimes difficult for individuals to understand that these are their health history. These are their, you know, coexisting serious conditions that can actually exacerbate you know, their illness. And I think it's important to clarify to those patients that, yeah, if you do have these conditions, the likelihood of you scoring, you know, a little bit worse on that initial clinical evaluation, you know, evaluation is there. Yeah. And it's meant to be as objective, again, Mm -hmm. as it can be. Um, But all of the comorbidities or the other health issues in addition to, let's say, the pneumonia, the COVID um, uh, respiratory distress or disease, uh, it, it all has to go together because they all affect every every um, comorbid issue we have, like, again, um, COPD or other, other issues, um, does make a difference in overall survival um, rates for a certain disease. So let's talk. So you know, clinical evaluation is just one process of the of the steps that we that you've described. Take us through the the pandemic triage committee. I think that it would be very useful for people just to understand that it's just not one singular doctor who looks at the patient in the emergency room and says, "Look, this is where this patient is going to go, and this is just the outcome." Um, you know, is this sort of predetermined outcome? Take us through the committee and uh, and what that entails. Okay, so um, most institutions, at least that I've experienced um, with their pandemic triage protocols, have, um, an in, it's not independent of the institution, but it is not part of the treating team. So there's anywhere from two to three to four people on um, this triage committee. And they're only called in if there is scarcity of resources where a very difficult decision has to be made, whether or not this person will continue to benefit from a medical resource like a ventilator, or if they no longer will benefit. And benefit meaning um, go on to survive this this disease process. So if they're uh, very, very sick and it, the scores look very poor that they're going to survive, then a decision would have to be made. So the triage committee would be this um, somewhat independent group of folks that would review 
um, the data that the clinical folks have supplied, such as the SOFA scores and um, the other clinical data from the patient, and also go through the protocol as far as what their institutional protocol puts into priority categories. So many of them just have three priority categories. The first one being, you know, this person likely will survive. The second one being like, it's not as clear of survival. And the third one would be, will not survive this, this event. And that's what the triage committee would then decide um, based on the data that they have. And the scores all go together to, to give them a priority score. So it's as good as we can get as being objective and making these decisions that are fair and that can be applied to all patients in the similar priority category. So um, then the committee would make a decision and discuss uh, what their decision is as a group with the clinical staff. Dr. Anderson Shaw, who's typically on these sort of committees? So basically, I think the, the what what many institutions do is they want an ethics consultant, somebody who um, knows the literature and has um, experience with um, medical decision-making models, things like that. Oftentimes, there'll be uh, a social worker or a chaplain. So it's somebody that's not so clinical, but has a lot of input um, with patient care aspects. Um, and then the third one could be like um, a nurse uh, or another provider level that is um, uh, uh, that is part of the team but isn't part of the clinical team that's taking care of the patient. So it can be a mix of, of any of those providers, but the main thing is is we try to, and the protocols usually will say, the treating physician, the attending physician, or any of the, the staff that are taking care of the patient at the moment would not be part of that triage committee, but would stay independent. And in that way, we think that uh, the protocols, the triage levels could be as equally distributed as we could do it um, uh, with the data that we have. Now, these committees, you had mentioned, obviously, that once we, you know, pass the healthcare capacity threshold and that these resources, whether it be mechanical ventilators or blood products, et cetera, become in limited supply, that these committees would be instrumental, um, you know, in in the the care of the patient and helping to determine, you know, the, the clinical progress of them. Uh, but before we get to that threshold, infrastructurally, are we... Are we setting up these committees beforehand as we, you know, prepare for the COVID-19 pandemics, um, you know, before we even get to that apex? Do we have these, um, you know, uh, these procedures in place? Um, I, I can only say that from my experience, um, most of the institutions that I've been in contact with we're just recently making these triage protocols because we didn't have to have those prior. Um, when there's not a pandemic or a disaster, you don't really sure. have to make decisions based on some equal protocol that we apply to everybody. It's more of an individual patient um, doctor relationship and the decisions for different kinds of care are made 
by the patient family and, and the doctors. Um, and most of us in, this, in the Chicago area were working on our protocols um, within the last four weeks. So we got started when we started seeing the influx of patients coming in, especially to New York City and other large cities that um, were having to make these incredibly difficult decisions um, and just to be prepared. We never had to use the H1N1 um, protocols because it just never happened. And it turns out that if we do turn the corner in Chicago within the next seven to 10 days, we likely will not have to, to use the protocols um, for allocation of scarce resources. Which, so, which would be you know, a great relief too, again, Great mobilization yeah. by the institutions and hospitals, as well as implementation of physical distancing and mitigating behaviors, too. I, I do want to touch yeah. upon, um, you know, early family involvement, because not only is it a critical part of the process here, but in times when we're dealing, let's say, with a very, um, with a respiratory virus that is really easily transmissible to people, hospitals are limiting um, both visitors and family uh, we've heard of many cases where, you know, the loss of loved ones happen essentially remotely, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk to us about, you know, early family involvement. How do we promote that um, when, you know, patients present and how do we get, get those in the early family involvement, you know, happening on the front end rather than, you know, on the back end? Yeah. It takes a lot of time for the clinical staff to make phone calls, to take phone calls from family members, especially right now where there's no visitors allowed and um, in or out, you know, because of, of the transparency of, of our policy, but also because the COVID virus can um, be passed on very, very quickly just through normal contact. So the most important thing was to keep people who weren't essential to the hospital away from being in the hospital. And I know a lot of nursing homes are doing the same thing. There's no visitors allowed and the, the patients can't go out or the, the um, residents of the nursing home aren't allowed out because of um, how quickly COVID can spread. Um, so talking with the family, um, keeping them informed uh, all day long is, is a, a huge responsibility of the clinical staff. Um, and what we've recently noticed, a lot of the institutions are using iPads and they're, they're quickly being mobilized and being able to use these iPads in their room because a lot of the intensive care units, they don't have phones in the rooms and the patients are really kind of too sick sometimes. But the patients that are not in the ICU usually can talk on their phones and um, be able to use iPads to communicate with their family. So I think um, in this particular case where no visitors can come in, we've been able to be very creative and find ways of helping them communicate with their family. The palliative care teams are often also very concerned if the patient is dying and they'll be without family or friends at the bedside when they do pass. Um, and there are ways that the institutions are trying to make sure that if a family member is available to come in, that there's a way for them to suit up 
and be able to go in and be with their family. Um, but I think the safest thing is just using the iPads and the phones. But it is a concern that that these um, people are are being treated without any family in the in the area in the room or available and it's just very it, it's moral dis, it's gives us a sense of moral distress that the person may may die without having any family in the room so we're very sensitive to that you know important need to have somebody there but also to make sure that the public health issues are taken care of and we don't spread more COVID. Absolutely. And I think one one key, you know, group of people I'd like to focus on, too, just briefly is, you know, the our, our translating team service, too, because you have many patients who come in who are not fluent in English, too, as well, and neither are their family members, too. And to have that intermediary to help with those, um, not only are we communicating via technology, but then you're also using, you know, a, a, another a translator to facilitate that too. Yes, and there's so many um, great options for translation now in hospitals. If we don't have a physical person that can speak the language, mm-hmm. we can use um, uh, other computer type. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. Um, Translating so services, yeah, via phone or, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So there's a lot of different options for translation in the language that a, a patient can speak. If we can get a translator who's trained uh, in in the language um, and is a medical translator, that, of course, is the best option. But oftentimes um, in the hospitals, we may not have that option 24 hours a day. So we use the um, computer model or computer um, translation companies that can help us with that but it is it is a, an important aspect to be able to communicate with the patient and the family in their language now dr anderson shaw take us through because we've seen especially in like new york and even here in chicago the use of large scale hospital infrastructural um you know buildings so for example i you know soccer stadiums mccormick center yeah. and whatnot so we're having field hospitals being built as we speak. And if we are needing to mobilize those resources, how does this uh, clinical decision model lateralize to um, facilities outside, you know, those four walls of the standard hospital we see? That's a really good question because usually they're not the like McCormick Place or the field hospitals that they're putting up. They're not um, in institutions, like it's not like a, a regional hospitals hospital. It's being run by either the um, military folks or uh, an outside group. So I am not aware of the triage protocols for those places. However, we do know that only those patients that do not require the intensive care and the um, level of the hospital. At least right now in Illinois, we don't have a a crunch on our ICU beds um, that 
the folks that have less medical need are at these sealed hospitals. Now, New York, I, I couldn't say for sure because I know that their hospitals, their their population of COVID-19 patients is far greater than any in the rest of the country, I think, except for maybe Louisiana might have a pocket. But for the most part, we're diverting um, patients that are not so sick to the, the field hospitals and reserving the intensive care units and the more aggressive therapies uh, to those patients who, are, who, who have uh, greater greater need. Because I think that would be just one one concern in terms of, you know, sort of tempering that panic is that when somebody with symptoms of COVID-19, let's say the hospitals are, you know, at capacity and they have to go to these field hospitals that they're getting the same level of oversight um, and, you know, not necessarily care, but oversight in terms of these decisions of where they allocate, you know, the resources to and that it's that it's objectively, you know, yeah. you know, seen that this patient scores at the same level as if they would present, let's say, at an academic hospital versus a field hospital? Yeah, and that's a great question. I am not sure exactly what happens in the field hospitals, um, but that's something I think we should look at. Let's let's take a look at, well, let's, let's hypothetically come to a situation here, right, in, in implementing this, this clinical decision model. So hypothetically, so I, I'm a 39-year-old healthy male. I have no pre-existing conditions. Um, I, I don't have diabetes or anything like that. So I, I'm, I'm very healthy. I see my doctor every year. So I come in. I have symptoms of COVID-19. So I, I feel, you know, I have fever. I have a shortness of breath, uh, maybe a dry cough. And it's it's gotten worse over, you know, a period of days where – I actually feel like I need to go to the emergency room because I can't write it out at home and I can't quarantine myself to where I feel I need medical care. So I walk into the emergency room and there is, let's say, so I'm patient A. Patient B is the same age as me with no pre-existing conditions. And hypothetically, we have breached that healthcare capacity. And there is a limited supply of ventilators there. And both of us, patient A and patient B, need to be the clinical team has assessed us and said, look, we need to mechanically ventilate these two. Take us through this sort of, this ethic, ethical dilemma here. What, what do we do? So that's the, the, the situation that nobody ever wants to be in, in, in the, the hospital or the clinical situation. But um, all the protocols have what we call tiebreakers in the protocols so that to your point, if you have two patients that for all intense clinical reasons are in the same priority, have the same score, let's say, put together by the SOFA or whatever clinical scores the, the team is using, if there is a tie in that priority and a decision has to be made between those two people, um, then there are what we call tiebreakers in the protocol that would allow an, an, equal, an equal decision based on the priority scores to break that tie and to give the, let's say it is, between one person getting on the vent and one person not, then we have to have those tiebreakers to um, be able to 
clearly make that decision within the protocol. So it's we we don't want to ever get into that situation. And different institutions again have different tiebreakers. They're very similar, um, but it depends on on if it's a religious institution or not, and and many other things related to the institution itself. But that is a situation that we would never want to be in. But if we were, we would have a guideline to help us with that. Right. And obviously, to decide to mechanically ventilate a patient is a very, you know, rather quick decision that is made by the clinical team and implemented very quickly, too, as well. So time is obviously of the essence. And to expect that, you know, a committee could make a decision in that sort of time frame would be unrealistic. However, one thing I do want you to touch on too, if it's, that's part of the, your, your, your process too, is this appeals process. I think that's, uh, you know, important to that, that people know about the appeals process. Just touch on that if you don't mind briefly. Yeah, no, I will. Um, so, um, again, the, the tiebreakers are, are used only in those specific cases. Now, um, institutions will not get to the point where they have no more ventilators available um, before they they call the triage committee, or before the triage committee gets gets um, notified. So what the goal would be to is when you get to a critical uh, shortage, whatever the institution decides is their allotted. Let's say you have sixty vents, and when you get down to only fifty five, then you start looking at the triage protocol. So you don't end up with no ventilators available and having to, to change. But I could see in certain instances where that might happen. But the goal would be to to get the triage committees involved prior to that decision. But appeals, oh, do you have a question on that? Sure. Yeah. Just walk us through, you know, should a, a family member or, per, or a person of relation to the patient feel that their loved one's that they that they disagree in some yeah. way, shape, or form or capacity for the the decisions that the team is making for the patient. Take it walk us through, you know, what 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 a person can do in terms of, you know, being their own advocate in this process. So if the patient or their decision maker, let's say they aren't able to make their own decisions mm-hmm. and it's it's their power of attorney for healthcare or their surrogate decision maker, if they don't agree with the decision made, then they can appeal it um, and talk to the, the attending physician that they don't agree with this and that they would like it to be reassessed. So if that happens, then um, it's usually up to the attending physician to be that, that go-between to help the family understand what's going on, um, but can also ask the triage committee to reassess. Um, and hopefully in between, we can get the right folks to come in and, and help the family during the very um, sad time for them. Um, but if it got down to it and the, pre-arse, and the triage scores and everything became equal, the same as it prior, then um, a decision would have to be made. Dr. And- Anderson Shaw, I mean, this is, this is outstanding in terms of really tackling this fear of the unknown because I think that's what the majority of us have right now. And I think that, you know, discussing the, the specific process of this clinical decision model 
should we breach our healthcare capacity? And there's an issue with mechanical ventilators and the supply and blood products and things like that, that people know um, that there is just a framework in place and that, that, that is adopted wide, widely through both academic hospitals, private hospitals, and larger institutions that, that patients know that too. And most institutions really do want to be transparent and get this information out. Um, many committees that uh, were working on different protocols, um, not just this one, but in the hospital in general, usually have a community member or two that are at the table um, looking at how the process is being written and on what basis and what scores we're using and um, can can help help the teams look at the community in a different way than we do because as a community of healthcare providers it's very different than the community that often comes into our institutions um, and we need to be very aware of of our community that we serve and what's important and how to make sure that we're transparent and that it isn't something that we're going to apply um, without great thought, but that we are going to try our best to be as, as um, transparent, but apply the protocol in the most consistent manner with all patients. And um, that takes a lot of trust uh, for the community to to understand, but also to to um, be part of the discussion. Absolutely, thank you, Dr. Anderson Shaw. Thank you for being a part of our discussion. Uh, she is the former um, director of the Clinical Ethics Council Service and assistant clinical professor at University of Illinois Hospital. We really, really appreciate you coming on our show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. We thank Dr. Anderson Shaw for being with us here today on Dr. Dave on Call. She was very helpful in answering our questions today uh, regarding the um, ethical issues that surround our current pandemic, COVID-19, and what can happen if we enter the healthcare system and that our resources are scarce and that we've gone through this healthcare threshold um, and we've reached capacity specifically tailored towards, you know, decisions of who gets mechanical ventilators, how long they should stay on them, blood products. I think it's very reassuring that we have uh, an excellent clinical decision model that Dr. Anderson Shaw and her colleagues at the University of Illinois Medical Center have developed during the H1N1 pandemic in 2009 that is very applicable today and that there are um, you know, pandemic triage committees that are put together, that we have, um, you know, outstanding clinicians who are putting themselves in harm's way to accurately um, triage these patients um, quickly and objectively too. And more so, we also have the um, vigorous desire to um, have family involvement early on. And obviously that's been done uh, ele electronically now, but um, with the help of technology, we can do that. Uh, that's especially important when we talk about um, end-of-life measures and palliative measures too, of when we um, you know, need to make these difficult decisions that the family has been involved early on from the beginning 
and so that these decisions are, um, you know, well thought out and um, involve everybody from the family, the treatment team, the attending physicians. So, uh, and also knowing that there is an appeals process too. Uh, if there is some disagreement in between what the family's expectations and what their belief systems are, um, and that there's an appeals process that can take place too. So we really greatly appreciate Dr. Lisa Anderson-Shaw coming on our show today to explain these really difficult questions um, that, that involve hard ethical issues um, in relationship to the COVID-19 pandemic. We encourage you to, um, you know, if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to our show. We're on uh, um, by email, hello at drdaveoncall.com. You can tweet us at drdaveoncall. Um, and uh, uh, call us to 877-DR-DAVE-5. We are greatly appreciative for um, our experts who participated today and uh, look forward to seeing you um, on subsequent episodes. You can download us um, on Apple iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we look forward to, to being with you next time. Take care. <laughs>